0: Well, it's a
1: joy to be here with you all, Um, it's a a pleasure and a blessing to be here after about five years of being away, so spent the last four years in Uruguay, and have uh, arrived back in the United States about November 29th, so uh, we're just blessed by the Lord to be here uh, to be with you, worshiping our Lord together on this Lord's Day, and it's a joy to see you and to get to meet people that we've, uh, about names sometimes, but you know, we need to put a face with the names, so it's a blessing to be here with you guys. Uh, we're going to be looking at the Lord's word today in Matthew chapter 16. So if you want to turn your Bible there and your copy of God's Word, uh, chapter 16 of Matthew, you'll have to forgive me. this is the first time I'm preaching in English in like four years, so <laughs> um, So if I mess up or start you know, you know branching out into Spanish, please forgive me. But um, now really, uh, we're looking at a wonderful passage today um, from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, chapter 16, and I'd like to begin by praying and then I'll read the passage, okay? Father in heaven, uh, we praise your holy name. We thank you for this time to worship and glorify you. We thank you for the worship and for the ministry that we've already experienced this morning. As we've confessed our sins, as we've had our call to worship, Lord, Uh, we've been called into your presence to worship the King of Glory. Who is this King of Glory? He's the Lord Almighty. We praise You. Uh, we thank You for how You've forgiven us our sins, Lord. How You've sent Jesus, your, de- your dear Son, who has died for us, Lord. We thank You for Your Word, how You instruct us. We do pray and, and plead for Your Spirit's blessing upon the preaching of Your Word today, that it might be powerful uh, for our hearts, Lord. Not just for our minds, but also our minds, but also for our hearts, that we might be changed people. That we might grow in our love and appreciation for Jesus, our Savior. That we might grow in new obedience. That we might grow in our walk with You. I pray that You'd please give me the words to say. And that it might be glorifying to You, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's read uh, chapter 16, starting verse 21 through 28. It says, From that time... For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He's done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Amen. Well, nobody likes suffering. It's miserable, uncomfortable, and unwanted. The thought of severe suffering can produce fear, anxiety, and depression even in the most faithful of Christians. We see it all around us, don't we? We see it in the lives of our loved ones. We see it in our society. We see it around the world. And we, we uh, experience suffering every day. But we have to stop and realize that sin is what brought suffering into the world and that it was our fault originally that God created the world good but that we brought suffering into the world through our own sin and rebellion to God. Well, as we look at Matthew chapter 16 today, uh, we want to realize that uh, suffering is actually part of God's design, even though that's not really the way He created the world. Uh, He uses it for His own purposes, uh, and He chose in His sovereign purposes and His uh, glorious purposes to use suffering uh, to be the very thing that would accomplish our salvation through Jesus Christ Himself that our Lord had to face the cross and to suffer and to die for us. Not only that, brothers and sisters, but He uses suffering in our own lives to sanctify us. But He calls us to a life of being willing to suffer, of being willing to follow Him, of being willing to deny ourselves, of being willing to go to our death. Like our our Lord Jesus, who is the Lamb who was led to the slaughter without speaking a word. And we too must follow our Lord in this. Though in no way we are accomplishing salvation for anybody, but it is the pattern that Christ has set forth for us. For some reason, in God's divine purposes, He has set that forth in His purposes. We are called to live in a a world that's filled with suffering and evil. He could call us, uh, upon coming to know Christ and being saved, He could have called us home and we could have gone to heaven. But for some reason, He's left us here to learn to trust in Him, to learn to glorify Him, to fulfill His purposes in our lives to use us for His glory. Well, I hope that this message is not too much of a downer for us, but it's a good reminder to us of God's purposes. And I hope that we shall see some hope at the end of the message as Christ gives some of the reasons uh, for some of this suffering. And as we reflect a little bit upon uh, what our Lord went through as He suffered for us to save us from our sins. See, our tendency, brothers and sisters, is that we uh, can forget the depths to which God went to save us and the pain and suffering that Jesus experienced us and what that shows us about the depths of God's love for us and how He cares for us profoundly. So I hope that this is a reminder for us this morning of God's love for us and of the glorious majesty and love and, and passion of Christ who was our Savior who came to do these great things for us. And I hope tonight as well that God will remind us of our responsibility as disciples of the Lord. Not just our responsibility, but the glorious privilege that it is for us to walk in the ways of our Lord, serving Him. And the great strength and grace and hope that we get once we realize who Jesus is and the hope that we have in heaven at the end of the age. Well, we'll be principally covering two things today from this passage Uh, one is the suffering of jesus christ because uh what we see from this message really or from this passage is uh the necessity of suffering and we see it in two ways the suffering of jesus christ himself and our own sufferings disciples of jesus well let's start with the suffering of christ as we look at verse 21 as we come to verse 21 uh you may remember the previous context if you've ever read matthew chapter 16 Uh, it's funny because in the previous context, uh, Jesus announces um, or He asks His disciples, who do people say that I am? If you look in verse 13, who do people say that I am? And some said John the Baptist, others said Elijah. But who do you say that I am? And guess who answers? Simon Peter. In this great heroic moment, he recognizes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, And so we see Peter acknowledging that Jesus is Christ in a great victorious statement from Peter. But moments later, as we read, we see that Peter has uh, come to Jesus to rebuke him. And so we'll see that in our passage today. So that sets the context a little bit for us as we look at uh, Peter's rebuking of Jesus here. And looking at verse 21, what does Jesus say? It says actually... Matthew says, "From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things." So he, here we see uh, that Jesus. It was necessary that Jesus suffer. It was necessary that Jesus suffer. It was necessary that he go to the cross. We might stop and scratch our head and think, "Why could it, or how could it be necessary that if Jesus is the Son of God, he's sovereign?" Uh, He doesn't have to suffer. He could do what he pleases. He's God in the flesh. Why or in what sense was it necessary when it says he must suffer? Well, I think that we can gain some insight into this by thinking way back into eternity past. And if you think about from before the foundation of the world how God has chosen us in Christ, we think about the covenant, what theologians have called the covenant of redemption. That great accord or covenant that God had made within the Godhead, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, between principally the the Father and the Son, but with the Spirit acting out salvation for us, putting into practice in our lives. But the Father and the Son came to an agreement that they would save us from our sins and redeem a people for Himself, for God's good pleasure. That's the sense in which it's necessary. In Scripture, in uh, 1 John 4.10, we see that the Father sent the Son. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a propitiation for our sins. We also see in Scripture that the Father handed over the Son. Romans 8.32, it says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Himself up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? But Christ also was part of this accord or this covenant. Christ went to the cross willingly. John ten seventeen says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So again we see the covenant of redemption at work here. We see that it was always God's purpose to save a people for Himself. God loved you from eternity past. Jesus saves us. Sometimes I think that we forget the depths to which Jesus loves us and how He came to sacrifice Himself for us and what He went through for us. But if you remember God's great purpose in all of eternity... Uh, throughout all of redemptive history throughout the Old Testament, God was preparing uh, the people of God and the world for the time that the Messiah would come, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed One, at just the right time the Bible says Jesus came on the scene and he came to save sinners like us, sinners who had no hope. perhaps you were uh, grown perhaps you grew up in a Christian home, perhaps you grew up in a non-Christian home but either way, I think that you can stop and think, what if it were? What would it be if God never saved me? What would my life be like right now? I shudder to think what my life would be like right now if, it would, if God had not saved me at 17 years old, growing up in a nominal Roman Catholic family. But then God reached out and plucked me out of the uh, fire of hell, the, uh, the future fires of hell that I would be facing had it not been for His grace and love. And I think you could probably identify it the same way. For my wife, she was raised in a Christian home all of her life. But that precious promise, that precious work of Christ means so much to us as Christians. Well, we also see the nature of uh, Christ's suffering here. Look at uh, with me at verse 21 again. It says that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. He must suffer many things. Now, you and I understand that jesus had many things to look forward to so to speak in the suffering of course he wasn't looking forward to it but he knew that it had to be done it was his pleasure to save us we know but the disciples did not understand at this point but let's stop for a moment and think about some of the suffering of jesus he says that he would be suffering many things from the uh from the elders the chief priests and the scribes in other words from the religious leaders of ancient Israel during this time. And if we remember from the Romans, we'll see that the uh, council, the Sanhedrin, actually condemned Jesus. But then Pilate actually gave his stamp of approval for him to be crucified. The Roman governor. Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples just before the time of the crucifixion. Uh, What did it say that happened to Jesus? It said that he prayed and it says that he uh, sweat drops of blood he was in such agonizing uh suffering at that moment in his psyche in his being in his soul of course he was committed to following the father's will but yet it tore him up inside being a human being a human human person in the flesh like us it had to have done that and then later on uh, jesus when he was led to his crucifixion what happened he was mocked by the soldiers. He was beaten and whipped by the soldiers. He had the shame and embarrassment of having to be treated such in such a way and having his clothes taken from him and having marched forward uh, either half nude or completely nude. And furthermore, he had the exhaustion of after, ha- after having been beaten to have to carry his own cross for part of the way. And all of this before the crucifixion. Do you understand what the crucifixion was? It was the most horrible way to die. It was the worst penalty for anything you could have done in the Roman Empire. They would tie the victim or nail him to a wooden cross and hang him upright. And he would hang there. And over time it became difficult to breathe and he would have to push up to breathe, to to, to breathe, uh, to bring air into his lungs. And eventually he would die in great suffering and anguish. But you know what, brothers and sisters? The suffering that Jesus went through physically is nothing in comparison to the suffering that He had to face on the cross when He underwent the wrath of God for us and for our sins. Jesus, it's incredible that Jesus in those moments on the cross took an eternity worth of wrath, of punishment in hell, if, as it were, for us, for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. He suffered the wrath of the Father Himself for us and it's amazing that we can't understand how he could do such a thing but it causes us to have great joy and thanksgiving that our lord would do such a thing for us well that's some of the suffering that he would have to experience on the third day be raised and then it says in verse 22 uh, we see peter's response what did peter do it's incredible it's insane that Peter would take his Lord, the rabbi, and rebuke him and say, no, no, you can't go to the Jerusalem and suffer. That's not going to happen to you. May it never be, Jesus. That's not going to happen to you. That's not going to happen to you. That was Peter's response. Why? Because during this time and era, uh, many faithful Jews expected that there would be a great uh, man of God who would be the Messiah, the Anointed One, who would be an earthly king, who would... Free them from the bondage of having to serve the Roman Empire and push their enemies outside of their territory and establish Israel as a great kingdom once again. They were looking at things from a terrestrial point of view, from an earthly, worldly point of view, not realizing that suffering, suffering was part of the redemptive plan of God to save us from our sins. That's the great error that Peter made here. Not realizing the way of God and how it is different from the way of man. But what was Jesus' response to this? Jesus' response we see in verse 23. But He turned and said to Peter, Get behind Me, Satan. You are a hindrance to Me. You are, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And this is almost hilarious because Jesus turns and says, Get behind Me, Satan. If it weren't so sad and so serious, it would be funny. Jesus, at that moment, experienced a very real danger of temptation. Satan himself was behind this temptation. Remember back in the wilderness when Jesus went out for 40 days and 40 nights and suffered in the wilderness, showing himself to be our great victorious king and our conqueror, conquering our sin and temptation and Satan for us. What did Satan say to Jesus during that time? Or what did, what did Jesus say to Satan? In Matthew 4.10, we see He says, Be gone, Satan. Be gone, Satan. We see something very similar here. Jesus recognizes that this temptation comes from the devil himself. If Jesus had followed that piece of advice, you and I, brothers and sisters, would never have been saved. We would have no hope. We would appear for, before God having to give account for our own sins, not having the righteousness of Christ, not having the penalty for our sins, having been paid for through the suffering of Jesus Christ. No, the Apostle Peter was setting his mind on the things of man rather than the things of God. And isn't that way so often for us, dear ones? uh, We so often look at our own lives and we think, We look at our circumstances and we we look at what's going on. We're like, Lord, why is this going on in my life? Or why did you allow that? And we're looking at it through our own limited uh, temporal perspective, not realizing that God has a greater purpose and a greater plan in His great love for us. And that His will and His plan is perfect for us. So it's an encouragement for us to remember that God's ways are not our ways. God's plans are not our plans. Isaiah 55, 7 through 9 says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may co- have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So this is actually a very gracious passage here in Isaiah 55, showing us that though we, like Peter, have made mistakes, we have made errors in our thinking, and we put our mind on the things of man instead of the things of God, God says, come back to me. We have acted like wicked people doing that. But God says, there is much grace and love for you. Come back to me. Put your mind on the things of Christ. Think your thoughts after God's thoughts. And the Lord will pour out His compassion on us. He will abundantly pardon us. So we shouldn't beat up ourselves too too badly. Uh, We should remember, uh, like Pastor Randy reminded us during the confession of sin, which I appreciated so much, Was that if we stop short and we just beat ourselves up over sin, not realizing that Jesus Christ has forgiven us and He's actually provided everything for us, then we have stopped short of understanding the true nature of God's salvation for us in Christ. And I I like thinking about it that way. Because so often, I don't know about for you, but for me, I do stop short. I just beat myself up over sin, which is good. It's good for us to recognize our sins and repent from them and turn away from them. But if we can't really receive God's pardon, we're thinking, oh, no, Lord, you can't you can't forgive me. My sin is too bad. Then we've actually sinned against God because we're not really taking Him at His word. But then at that point, we can say, Lord, please have mercy on me. I, oh, I'm a man of little faith, or I'm a woman of little faith. Please help my unbelief and grant me forgiveness and assurance, oh, Lord. And the Lord will grant you that assurance as you seek Him. And show you the depths of His love and mercy and grace that's found only in Christ. He is our only hope, brothers and sisters. Well, we know that Christ's suffering was necessary because if He didn't suffer for our sins, then we would never have been saved. Now we understand a little bit about the nature of that suffering and what it means for us and what it says about God's love for us. But we want to also take a look about why our suffering as true followers of Christ is necessary as well. And the calling that Jesus has placed upon us. And we'll be looking at verse 24 and following. And we see here that there's a high cost to being a disciple. This is no easy believism, brothers and sisters. Once we enter into that relationship, that walk, once we become part of the covenant of of God, enter into His covenant family, we no longer belong to ourselves, but we were purchased at a great place. Price, the price of Christ's blood. And we now have obligation to serve the Lord. He will call us to that discipleship. He says, if anyone would come after me, talking about discipleship, if anyone would come after me, that, fo- that means following Jesus as the disciple. What is a disciple? Someone who's following Jesus, who's putting themselves under His authority, as Lord, who's uh, following His teachings, His commandments, who's loving Him and praising Him and worshiping Him the context of Jesus, because He's God in the flesh, we will be worshiping Jesus. He's going to be our all. We don't love and appreciate Jesus only because of the things that He gives us. The forgiveness of sins, eternity in heaven, life everlasting, wonderful, deep, blessed fellowship with other believers in Christ, the joys, the all, all the blessings that we have, our inheritance in Christ. But we, what's more important than any of that is that Jesus Christ Himself is our inheritance. He's worthy. He's worth everything. He's worthy. Anyone would come after me, what does he say? We must do these three things. And in the original language, brothers and sisters, these are imperatives. These are commands. We must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. Those three things. Deny Himself, take up His cross, and follow me. And we want to look at each one of those things in turn. Denying ourselves is not very easy, is it? Uh, I don't know about you, but you know, when we have to live with other people—whether you have a roommate, whether you have a wife or children, uh, whether you're in—you in, in, know, you go to college, you live in the dorm. You have to learn how to deny yourself and, and look out for the needs of others. People, parents, have to look out for the needs of their children. I know how hard it was for me when I first had our, our baby, Rebecca, who is now 21 and just got married. Um, I had to stop you know, expecting that I can do these types of things. I had the responsibility to stay home. Uh, we must deny ourselves and personal relationships in the church uh, with other brothers and sisters in Christ, putting their needs before our own. What does Paul the Apostle say? We must uh, look out not only for our own needs, but for the needs of others. deny yourself but you know in our society in our culture we're used to uh, fighting for our own rights putting ourselves first aren't we so often we don't really want to deny ourselves that's kind of foreign to us but brothers and sisters are there any things in our lives that are are actually that we're putting before the will or the the priority and primacy of the lord jesus christ Are we putting our comforts and pleasures before him? Is there some comfort in your life that you're not willing to give up? And I'm saying these things because I struggle with them too. Is there some pleasure that we're not willing to forego? Is there some personal desire or use of our time or our resources that we're not willing, that we're holding back, that maybe God is calling us to use for his glory? Are there plans that you have for the future that are so fixed, so tightly held on to, that you're not willing to give them up? That's not really being willing to deny ourselves. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus wants to take away all of our pleasures and comforts. He doesn't want to take away our desires. He's placed many of those desires in our hearts. But we need to come to a place where uh, our life is not our own. It's like the Apostle Paul said I mentioned earlier we were bought at a price. We no longer belong to ourselves, but now we belong to Jesus. We are no longer slaves to sin, to do its bidding, but now we are slaves of righteousness, slaves of Christ, servants of Jesus, called to worship and honor Him. It should be such a pleasure and joy. I remember that Jesus said, you know, take my yoke upon you. It's not a a difficult yoke. It's not difficult. But sometimes it seems difficult for us. And, and it really does. God's not discounting our experience. He understands that it can be difficult to say no to ourselves. And He's very patient with us. He loves us. It's like parents with young children. I mean, when they're learning to do things like walk or whatever, the parent doesn't, because they can't walk, doesn't slap them and say, you know, start walking, kid. No, but they're very patient and loving. And God is that way with us. He loves us. Deny ourselves for Christ. Then he says, take up his cross. These things are all somewhat related. Um, Jesus has the cross in mind, literally, that he's going to the cross and dying for us. And God may call some people, some Christians, maybe some of us, to give our very lives for Christ. And you may never know. But there are brothers and sisters around the world who are doing that very thing now, giving their lives for Christ. But at the very least, if we're willing to give our very lives for Christ, ought we not also to be willing to give anything that Christ demands of us, our time, our resources, uh, volunteering for something that's good, uh, helping out, serving in in various ways. We're called to die to ourselves, to die to our sin, to put to death the remnants of sin that dwell within us. In fact, all but one of the 12 apostles went to their death for Christ. So Jesus is actually speaking here in this passage to the apostles here, the disciples. He's saying very literally to them, you must be willing to pick up your cross and follow me. And from church history, uh, we believe that Peter did that very thing, that he gave his life being crucified upside down on a cross later on, which we think that's a very reliable account So it probably did happen. So for us, though, as disciples of Christ, we must be willing to follow Jesus in that way, um, taking up our cross. Uh, We also must be willing to follow Jesus. That's a commitment to obey Jesus, to love him, to worship him. And to follow him and give our all for Christ. Remember, brothers and sisters, Jesus is worthy and worthy. We want to think about all of these things, these imperatives, these commands, in light of the suffering that we contemplated earlier in the, in the previous verses, that Jesus said He must go. This was not any you know necessity that was uh, put upon Him by the very nature of reality. This was a necessity that He chose. Jesus Christ Himself chose that. And that should give us the impetus to serve and love Him even more even more and more brothers and sisters. But in the following verses, Jesus does give us three reasons why uh, we ought to follow Him as disciples, suffering or being willing to suffer in these ways. Notice that Jesus says in verses verses 26 and 27, He uses the word for three times. For, verse 26. Verse 27, for the Son of Man. Three different times. Verse 26, for what will it... I'm sorry, verse 25. "Uh, For whatever, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? (laughs) Jesus, I think, is mentioning something very practical for our lives. Saying that if you're not willing to lose your life and find it in Christ, then your life will not be what it should be or ought to be. Put another way, Jesus is our life, and if you're not a true worshiper of Jesus, if you're not following the Lord and loving Him and making Him your life, then you're missing out. What does the Westminster uh, Confession say in, 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 in question number one? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. If our chief end or our final purpose is to love and glorify God, to enjoy Jesus. If we're not following after Jesus as disciples, then we're missing out. Our lives are not fulfilled. Our lives are not what they ought to be. And I think that's the aspect that Jesus is trying to bring out here. Because he also gives a very related one in verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Now, this has eternal implications. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? What if you gain riches and uh, you forsake Christ and you make you know money, your God, and you go out and you make a million dollars or a billion dollars or what have you, but your life is empty without Christ? You will lose your very soul because you will not be saved from your sins. You will be dead in your sins and your transgressions for all of eternity and you'll be condemned to hell forever. That is, is something very serious. That is something to contemplate. What will it gain a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his own soul? It will gain him nothing. That's another reason why we all ought to be disciples of Jesus. And if there's somebody here today who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not uh, put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you've not called upon Him, confessing your sins and putting your faith in Him, You have the opportunity to trust in Jesus. He will not turn your way. He will accept you. And He will forgive all of your sins. And you will find eternal joy in Him. Well, Jesus gives us a third reason, which we find in verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in glory of His Father. And there He will repay each person according to what He has done. Jesus wants us to set our eyes on the coming judgment. At the end, of the, uh, the end of the age when Jesus comes back in His second coming, there will be a judgment. Some to eternal life and some to eternal death. And He says, the Son of Man, or Jesus, is coming with His angels and He will repay each person according to what He's done. Now, for this, uh, th- this is a message for the condemned uh, and for the, the, the saved. To the condemned or the lost, this is actually a warning. Trust Christ now. Turn away from your sins and cling to Lord Jesus Christ. But for us as believers, it speaks of our reward. It gives us hope and encouragement and great joy. As we look at the suffering that we have to face in this life, and I know that all of you uh, experience, have experienced much suffering in your lives in various ways, some more than others. We've lost loved ones. Uh, perhaps some of you struggle with chronic pain. Uh, you've had the pain of rejected relationships or strained relationships. We suffer in a fallen world. Where we read of world events where we just hear about the anguish of people who are in uh, places of, uh, where they're being in, killed by, by, by wars. Uh, we see sin and, and suffering all around us. For us, we realize that even though God has left us in this world and we have experienced much suffering, that it's all uh, pales in comparison to what we have—the hope that we have in heaven that's coming. Perhaps you remember um, that the Apostle Paul said in uh, Second Corinthians four uh, sixteen that our suffering. Uh, is light and momentary in comparison with what will be revealed in us. Let me read that that scripture for you. 2 Corinthians 4.16 So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, But the things that are unseen are eternal. So for me, personally, one of the greatest encouragements in the Christian life is that hope of eternal life when we will be with Jesus forever. That hope of eternal life. When Jesus comes back, when we experience that vindication, that setting of right of all things, when uh, those those who have done evil and have not turned to the Lord Jesus Christ will be uh, judged by the Lord, And everything will be set right. And sin will be no more. And suffering will be no more. That's the great hope that we have, brothers and sisters. And then Jesus says in verse 28, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. We might ask ourselves, what does that have to do with uh, verse 27? Well, in verse 27... Jesus is referring to the end of the age when Jesus comes back, when he comes to judge the world. But many, if not most scholars, and my opinion as well, that verse 28 refers to uh, the beginning of the coming of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I live in a time of the already and the not yet. We live in a time between the first and the second coming of Jesus. We live in a time of the church age, like I said before, where we're left in the world and we have to experience struggle with sin. We have to experience suffering, uh, but we begin to experience the joys of the Lord. We see Jesus coming in his power, even uh, in this world. And I believe that this verse Jesus is referring to, talking about those disciples that were with him that day, that some of them will have not have died yet by the time that Jesus' kingdom commences. Where do we see that? Well, we see that in various aspects. Many scholars argue, does this refer to the resurrection or to the ascension uh, or the book of Acts or something else? Well, I don't see any reason why we can't think that Jesus possibly meant all of these aspects. Uh, Remember, some of the great redemptive uh, truths that came about when Christ uh, came into glory after the resurrection were the resurrection itself. In Romans 1.4, we see that Christ was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection uh, Christ's kingly authority is another aspect. Matthew twenty-eight, Jesus says that he has been given all authority in heaven and earth. He's become the great king. His ascension we see in Acts one nine. Jesus ascended in great glory. His glory has already arrived. Uh, Pentecost in Acts two, when the, the the coming of the Holy Spirit, the presence of Christ is with us by virtue of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. We see the great expansion of the church in the book of Acts and how. Even the Apostle Paul himself says this Gospel has been preached all over the world as bearing fruit. The Gospel went to the Gentiles. We see Jesus' heavenly enthronement in Acts uh, 5 uh, where Stephen, as he was being martyred, looked up into heaven See, I see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And then they stoned Him to death. Jesus indeed came in glory. And during this church age, Jesus continues to reign in great glory even though sometimes we don't see Him intervening in the ways that we might hope. And that He leaves us sometimes in our suffering. Or He calls us to go through difficult things and suffering in our lives or great sacrifices. But, Even in this world, we have begun to experience the great blessings of Jesus. We have fellowship with the Father right now because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. We have the assurance of the forgiveness of sins. We have the great hope of of our own resurrection, as the Apostle Paul says in Corinthians. All of those things should give us great joy and peace and excitement and gratitude. God understands the suffering that you go through every day. And I want you and I to remember that Jesus is reigning from on high and that He loves us and that He went through great suffering for us so that we could be part of His family, that we could be grafted into the covenant along with the rest of His covenant people and that we could have the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we... Praise and glorify You for our Lord Jesus Christ who indeed went through great suffering for us and who indeed planned that from eternity past knowing that His time would come when it was perfect timing in the great plan of the Father. We thank You that that time came and passed and that we today can look back to that great redemptive act of Jesus who took the suffering for our sins upon the cross That we know that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are now forgiven in Christ. We are declared to be righteous and our sin is forgiven. And now we live joyous lives of faithful discipleship, Lord, though not without suffering, though not without pain, but in light of what You've done for us and in light of eternity in light of the great hope that we have in the future, knowing that You are good and that You care for us and that You will be with us every step of the way. And we pray that you would help us be faithful, Lord, for our temptation is to turn away. But we know that you are preserving us. We know that you take care of us, Lord. And we're grateful to you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.